The city of Kairos, capital of the greatest empire the chained world has ever known, teeters on the brink of anarchy. From below, the dark cult of the machine continues its inexorable rise, whilst in the streets above, there are running battles that the authorities, despite their weight of numbers, seem powerless to contain. In light of the destruction of Palace Tereth, the chaos in the Mercer's Quarter, and the growing sense of lawlessness on the streets, those remaining of the city's great and good are fleeing in their droves. And from the lowliest urchin to the wealthiest noble, there is one name that seems to have become synonymous with the city's fall from grace. A shadowy band of evil, murderous criminals whose dastardly machinations lie at the heart of all this chaos. The Web. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. Following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on the Lone Adventurer. The Black Wedding concluded with Flint being sent to hell and Mina being rescued, but at the expense of Tatters and Valerian. The Spider and Sallow, meanwhile, escaped the destruction of Dr. Crop's shop and managed to return with him to the relative safety of the Opera House headquarters. But there was treachery afoot. Sallow, it transpires, has sold his crew out to the leader of the Undying, the Vampire Lord, Tortimus. We're screwed, Spider. Done. Tatters and Valerian captured or dead. Posters for our capture up over half the city. All our dead drops compromised, the seven knows how. And Lord Froig only kept out of a blue-coat interrogation cell by a serious bribe. Lord bloody Froig. With him out the picture, we've lost our eyes on the council. Trace leans over the table, knuckles white. Our network is being dismantled in front of our eyes. How long before this place is blown too? You want to wait here until the blues or the cult or the unseen or the undying break down the door? It's over, Spider. We need to cut and run now while we still can. Crater, lounging with both feet up on the arm of their battered leather sofa, grunts in agreement. She's not wrong, Spider. You heard what they did to Sawtooth. Nailed up to his front door with his throat torn out. Messages don't come much clearer than that. Sallow looks like he's going to be sick. Crater, in spite of everything, laughs. Looks like we've pissed off just about everyone in this city worth a spit. I reckon we're cooked. There's no denying it. The crew are in rough shape. 
There's been no word from Tatters or Valerian since the debacle at Toroth Palace, and those that did make it back are pretty rattled. Their world feels like it's falling down around their ears, and the spider cannot deny the growing peril they, and the city, face. Word has it that Lord Tortimus, with the power of both the vampires of the Undying and the mercenaries of the Silver Nails at his disposal, is carving a path through the city's underworld. The military and blues are out in force on the streets, though how much benefit that is doing anyone is questionable. And, insanely, perhaps as a response to the rising levels of tension and uncertainty, it seems that public support for the cult of the machine is on the rise. In the face of chaos, it seems that order of any form is proving attractive to the desperate citizens of Kairos. Yes, the spider reflects, whichever way you slice it, things are looking pretty grim. Only a complete lunatic would stand and fight in the face of odds like these. She looks around at the ring of faces staring back at her, by turns scared, resentful and desperate. She really wishes she had Valerian backing her on this, but there's nothing for it. She is the leader of this crew, apparently. Time to lead. Time to go all in on one last crazy spin of the wheel. Cooked, you say? Don't you believe it, any of you. We are cooked when I say we're cooked, and not a moment sooner. There'll be no cutting and running for the League of Free States when the bombs start falling, will there? That, at least, gives trace pause. The spider presses on. And there'll be no cutting and running for us either. You all seem to forget we achieved what we set out to do in the face of overwhelming odds. We stopped the wedding, and we disrupted the creation of a power block intended to rival the Archdominar. We have learned about the enemy's supply lines, and we have recovered Dr. Crop. The Doctor, sitting with the others, looks distinctly unimpressed at that achievement. Unperturbed, the spider continues. No, running is the last thing on my mind. I have something quite different in store. Alphonse groans. Oh no, don't bloody say it. The spider meets his eye, and despite the twinkle of humour, there is not a hint of give in her gaze. You know it, Crater. I have a plan. It should come as no surprise to long-time listeners that I have absolutely no plan. The next mission is, as the spider has rightly identified, an all-or-nothing, desperate, final roll of the dice, so to speak. But, unlike my fictional character, I currently have absolutely no idea what happens next. But before I solve that particular puzzle, I need to talk briefly about what happened in the epilogue to the last chapter. So, there was a bit of a sting in the tail of that last chapter, the devil's bargain that Sallow took in order to guarantee success in his mission turned out to be betray a friend or loved one. And the oracles indicated that the Lord of the Undying was the one that Sallow had betrayed the crew to. Wonderful. As yet, we don't really know anything about the details of that betrayal. Not the how, or the what, or the why. But maybe those details will emerge through play. Either way, the party's position just got a lot more perilous. But it's not all bad news, because we've come once more to downtime. 
We've had one of those sessions after the Iron Hook mission, and another after the Twin Mustang and Great Machine missions, and now we have a third, the aftermath of the three parallel endeavours. I'm fond of this aspect of the Blades in the Dark rule set. The way the post-mission reckoning is distinct and codified, represented as a mechanical set of activities that operate as an entirely different mode of play to the mission mechanics. It's a sort of mini-game within the wider game, and I find it a lot more interesting and satisfying than the way that D&D handles downtime, for example. Running three missions in parallel puts a bit of stress on the Blades in the Dark rules that it was not designed to deal with, but they do seem to bear up pretty well under the strain. First off, I ended up with a total of plus nine reputation, which was almost, but not quite enough, to raise the web up one tier. Next, they earned six coin and also ten heat. That maxed out the heat track, raising the crew's wanted level to two and taking them five heat towards wanted level three. The stakes were definitely rising. But on the plus side, there were buckets of XP to hand out, both from the characters meeting the character goals on their sheets and from actions regularly being taken against a desperate position. Better yet, the team had already picked up a fair amount of XP from earlier missions, and with the spending of some coin for additional XP, my whole crew were able to buy new class features and extra action points. In addition, I was able to take a crew advance that means my whole crew now has an additional two stress boxes each. Very handy. Next, I rolled for entanglements. And because I'd had three teams earning rewards, it seemed only fair to have them earn three penalties also. I ended up with a show of force, reprisals and questioning. Where I didn't know what those results represented in the fiction, I used the oracles to help me. I think that this is a particularly well-designed element of the Blade's rules. The greater the mechanical heat level the crew faces, the more perilous the entanglement options become. Then everyone took their downtime actions, recovering, indulging in vices to clear stress, reducing heat, and so on, while I rolled against various faction clocks to find out what was happening behind the scenes. All of that provided me with a sense of developments in the city and the mental state of my PCs, which provided some flavour text in that last scene. Tatters and Valerian are out recovering for this mission after maxing out their stress tracks. A quick oracle check determined they never made it back to base, but as they are effectively NPCs for this coming mission, their location will remain a mystery for now, even to me. Instead, our crew for the upcoming mission will be made up of the Spider, Sallow, Crater and Trace. Let's find out what the spider has in mind in a moment. Are you looking for a D&D podcast for the dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. The spider had hoped for more from Jeren her contact at the Blue Coat Archive Office. 
Details on the company owners, perhaps, or the other vessels on their books. But for whatever reason, whether ignorance or disinterest or fear, Jeren had only been able to tell her that the merchant hauler, Percheron, was run by the Void Sea Shipping Company, VSS Co., a Kairos-based outfit running out of the docks. Which is why the crew find themselves slipping silently through the rear window of the VSS Co. offices in the dead of night, and doing their damnedest to avoid being spotted by any of the seemingly endless blue-coat patrols. The spider, crouching low, whispers to the others, Crater, you're on lookout. Trace, see if you can find us another route out of here if things go south. Sallow, just try not to blow anything up, okay? She makes her way down the hall, wincing at every floorboard creak. There is every possibility that the office manager is asleep upstairs, and they can ill afford anyone raising the alarm with the sheer presence of law enforcement out on the streets tonight. To her right, there is a glass-paned door, the company logo painted neatly in black and gold. She tries the handle and slips into the office. The spider pulls a tiny glow globe from a pocket and looks around. It's clear the Void Z shipping company has seen considerable success over the years. Everything is oak-panelled, beautifully carved and gilt-edged, dripping with old-school ostentation. But on closer inspection, it would seem that success has not been sustained. The room is dusty, the leather chairs scuffed and torn. This is the office of a company with fading fortunes. She files the information away and focuses instead on her immediate target, the shipping ledger. She's in luck. It has been left out on a large desk, and in moments she's flipping through the pages in anticipation. The elation swiftly turns to frustration. The book reveals nothing of real note. The names of multiple vessels, of course, but no clues as to which particular ships are supplying the armada. Someone has done an excellent job of scrubbing the books clean of any incriminating evidence. In fact, they've done more than that. She flips urgently back and forth through several pages of entries, and a pattern begins to emerge. Or rather, the absence of one. It's been expertly done, but there is a missing series of entries hidden among the legitimate ones. A ghost ship making regular trips to and from the city, but completely off the books. It's only by the carefully concealed hole in the numbers that she can even make out its existence. Fascinating. She turns the problem over in her mind, working the possibilities and probabilities. There are no details here on the infernal powder shipments. More information is required, that much is certain. It's time to switch to the riskier Plan B, creeping upstairs and attempting to conduct a surreptitious interrogation. And that is when a mighty explosion tears through the building. The floor bucks, windows blow out, and she is left with her ears ringing. She stumbles back out into the hall where the plaster dust is billowing from a door blown clean off its hinges. Sallow, caked in dust and soot, comes stumbling out after it, fluttering sheets of burning paper in his wake. What did I tell you? The spider gapes at him, incredulous. You had one job, Sallow. One. No more explosions. Sallow looks utterly crestfallen. It was a safe, spider. You know I can't resist a safe. 
I didn't try to blow it up, honest. I, I tried to pick it, but there was some sort of booby trap and... There's no time for that, the spider snaps, conveniently ignoring the fact that she was the one that blew up the last building and considerably more thoroughly than Sallow's attempt. Instead, she looks around at her crew. That blast has just brought every blue coat in a square mile down on our heads. We have to get out of here, now! As if to underscore the point, a whistle pierces the night, followed by another, and another. The net is closing in. For a gang of recently levelled-up super-spies, my crew does have a knack of totally screwing things up for themselves. The web is, I should remind you, a crew of shadows. Thieves, spies and saboteurs. Masters of misdirection and subterfuge. Experts in the subtle arts. And yet somehow, their passage through season two of this show seems to be more defined by a series of massive explosions and destroyed buildings. Is it any wonder the whole city is after their heads? But before I get too carried away with berating my team, let's just back up a little. This scene began with the instigating action of a new mission, the engagement role. In order to avoid spoilers, I'm not really going to go into the details of that role and the nature of the mission just now, but suffice to say that the overarching mission is a massive 16-segment clock called destroy the unseen supply lines, and that the crew began with a risky starting position. Of course, you can check out the show notes if you want to get the inside track on what the team has planned. Unfortunately, I screwed up the spider's gather information role to get intel on the shipping company behind the infernal powder, and so my scene opened with the crew breaking into the shipping company's offices in order to gather some more information. I made a group prowl roll to break in undetected, and basically that went okay at the expense of a bit more heat. And then I made a study roll for the spider. That was another success with the consequence, and the consequence this time was reduced effect. I asked the Starforge descriptor focus oracle how the effect was limited, and I got the delightfully appropriate response, lost ship. Mechanically, they had completed three ticks out of the 16 on this mission already. They only needed one more tick to get all of the info they required on the shipping company. I envisaged Sallow finding a safe to pick, made a tinker roll with a push, and, well, I think you can probably guess how that roll turned out. I could have had Sallow roll to resist this consequence, but I kind of like what it did to the story, and so I chose to roll with the punch. The way I've structured things this time out, they still need more information on the shipping company if they're going to complete the overall mission. Fingers crossed they can find that info somewhere else, because things just got a little spicy at this location. Time to move on, I think. The escape, the spider is forced to concede, is expertly managed. Under pressure, the team functioned like well-oiled clockwork moving at speed and in silence, perfectly coordinated. The flatfoots of the city bluecoats don't stand a chance. They're left chasing shadows as the web slip away into the night. I cared seven, the crater whispers as the crew peer out from a dark alley, looking out over the keys to the next target on their list, the Percheron. As expected, it is heavily guarded. Now wait, make that eight. Don't seem to be too with it though. 
The two in front are playing cards and that led up top looks like he's fallen asleep. Right for the plucking boss. The spider nods. Damn, but she wishes Tatters was with them. This sort of infiltration mission is tailor-made for her abilities. Still, Tatters is not the only one with skills in that department. Think you can get past them, Trace? We need to question the captain before we take that ship out, and to do that, I'll need to know exactly where to find him. Need to find us a way onto that ship. Like fooling of a log, Spider. Watch and learn, Trace grins, tugging up her face mask. The spider grimaces. Right, don't get cocky, Trace. We've had enough overconfidence for one night. Sallow suddenly seemed to have a powerful urge to examine his shoes. Come at them from the left, Trace. After those two walking perimeter, reach the prayer and turn. Should give you plenty of time. Trace rolls her eyes, but does as Crater suggests, hugging the shadows as she moves in towards the hauler. With the open ground of the quay covered, she clambers silently, hand over hand, up the hawser. Even knowing she is there, her crewmates have a hard time following her progress. She really is rather good, isn't she? Sallow whispers. And he's not wrong. In less than a minute, Trace reappears, flashing them a quick hand signal from the gunwale before vanishing from sight once more. We're going to have to hope we're just as good, the spider whispers back, because it's our turn next. Come on. The group sneak aboard with surprising ease, following Trace's route through the criminally inattentive guards. Though, in fairness, in two cases, that is because the scout has neutralised them. Trace has taken up a position behind the ship's lifeboat, waiting for them in the darkness. That porthole is the captain's quarters, she whispers, pointing. The door is off the corridor, doesn't seem to be locked. She peers from face to face in the dark, then asks, Where's Sallow? Spotted an open hatch to the engine room on the way here, Crater grins. He's setting delayed charges. Once we're done with the captain, this bird is getting its wings clipped. If the spider is concerned, she doesn't show it. That puts us on the clock. Let's get in, find out what we need to know, and get out, sharpish. Crater, are you all set? The big man cracks his knuckles. Always, let's get this done. Not ten minutes later, the crew have slipped back off the Percheron and are creeping through the back alleys towards their next target. Their mission has been a complete success. Not only have they scuttled the Percheron, but the captain sang like a canary at the suggestion the crew might leave him alone for five minutes with Crater. They had names, places and dates, and the means to leverage that information. But in spite of all of that, the spider is frowning deeply troubled by what they have learned of the ship that was missing from the ledger. Because that ship, the Calvina, turns out to have been ferrying infernal powder only off the books. VSSCO are being paid a small fortune by a secret buyer to skim off the top of the Unseen's powder supply. The Calvina's destination was unknown to the captain, but he had met the contact once. A thin-lipped, portly little fellow with a face like a smacked ass and the demeanour to go with it. A real bean counter, according to the captain, utterly meticulous over the transfer of funds with an officious, nasal voice that grated like nails on a chalkboard. Of course, the mystery contact had not provided his name, but he had not had to. There was only one person the spider knew who matched that description so perfectly. The secret buyer, who had arranged the theft of infernal powder from houses Montessario and Tereth, 
seemingly to create a stockpile of their own, was Digby Algaric, personal assistant to Alexis Montessario, the Whisperer of the House of Whispers. Every now and again, the dice gods decide to favour me, and this scene was one of those times. I made a series of action rolls this time out, and they came up as success, success, critical success, and success with a consequence. Which meant that, for a change, my crew got to look like the gang of heisty ninja badasses they were actually supposed to be. Super sneaky, ultra-competent. I'm finding it all a bit off-putting, if I'm honest. The success with a consequence at the end there, rolled whilst interrogating the captain, through an interesting spanner in the works, both narratively and mechanically. From a mechanical point of view, I started off by asking about the nature of the consequence. As I've already mentioned, I've been alternating between two different tools for my complex questions over the last few episodes. For most of Series 2, I've used the picture prompts from the Alone in the Dark solo supplement for Blades, created by Peter Rudenburgis. That tool has done me proud so far, helping to create a number of exciting and unpredictable twists throughout the story. But, like that much-used meme, I've been finding my head turned of late by the sexy new oracles on offer in Ironsworn Starforged. Perhaps it's because I'm seriously considering that rule set for the next series of The Lone Adventurer. Perhaps it's because a change is as good as a rest. Whatever the reason, it does illustrate an important lesson to keep in mind when soloing an RPG, and one I've touched on before. You have complete freedom to use the tools that you want, that interest you, or that best suit your requirements at that specific time. Consequently, when the picture oracle gave me something that didn't make immediate sense to me, I instead turned to the Starforged action theme and descriptor focus oracles, and they gave me the following results withdraw supply, and a valuable archive. Some sort of skimmer or thief, the one alluded to in the ledger, was at work. And who was this criminal chancer willing to take such deadly risks? My first thought, given that we've seen a fair bit of him lately, was Lord Tortimus, and so I asked the Oracle if it was him. I made the odds likely, 0-75 on a D100, and the Vampire Lord would be behind these new shenanigans. And, of course, I rolled a 95. Not him, then. I considered leaving the answer as unknown, but felt that leaving such an ambiguous plot thread hanging was a bit unsatisfying. And so I rolled on my faction list, and there it was. The House of Whispers. We've not seen anything of them in quite some time, not since the tail end of Series 1, in fact, and so I'm pleased to have them now finally reappear. There's been plenty of supposition on my part as to how the House of Whispers is linked to the Unseen. Let us not forget that this entire story began with the previous Whisperer sending Mina Montessario out on the trail of the Infernal Powder, and then getting himself assassinated by the Unseen. In light of the wedding plans and the powder shipments to the Hidden Armada, I'd assumed that Alexis, the new Whisperer, was in cahoots with the Unseen, and might even have been responsible for his predecessor's murder. But this new information makes me question that assumption. Wheels, it would seem, within wheels. All this uncertainty is a core part of this procedurally generated solo RPG experience. The world does not exist until it is directly observed or interacted with. 
elements of the world beyond that direct observation can be inferred or implied or imagined, but until we are provided with incontrovertible proof of the true nature of things, all options remain on the table. Anything is possible. And that, at least for me, is where the excitement comes from. From being continually on the liminal threshold, seeing the universe coalesce in front of my PCs as they stumble through the unknown, seeing connections form between previously discrete story threads, and seeing reality emerge from the ether as if it had been ever thus. For me, as the player of this game, that remains a continual thrill. It's one that shares some DNA with the experience one can get from a group game as you kick in the next metaphorical door, but I do think that the feeling is deeper and more sustained in a solo RPG. It really is a unique creative experience, and one I heartily recommend to anyone with a love of RPGs. But enough waxing ecstatic. It's time to draw this chapter to a close. What perils lie in store for our plucky band? What twists of fate await them? Damned if I know. And frankly, I wouldn't have it any other way. Until next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to my promotional trailer of enticement. My name is Art the Solo Gamer, and I am the storyteller and game master for a bi-weekly actual play podcast called The Solo Gaming Experience. Each season I use a different RPG system with some solo components thrown over the top of it to hopefully tell the best story I possibly can. Join me on the Solo Gaming Experience. That's the Solo Gaming EXP on any podcast platform near you. I humbly thank you in advance.